Um, if you are expecting to hear from the book of James today, uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but we are going to take a brief turn over to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and I'll explain uh, as we go along here. Uh, at the end of our many weeks in John, uh, chapters 14 through 16, if you'll remember, uh, that was the uh, upper room discourse. It was Jesus uh, in his final words to his disciples. In the very last verse of that section, before he turns to his great high priestly prayer in chapter 17, Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. But the truth is, and we talked about this at that time, we do not feel like overcomers. We don't feel like overcomers individually, and we don't feel like overcomers corporately as a church. Uh, I don't know if you pay attention to, you know, church news and commentary. Maybe for some of you guys, that's a little bit too much inside baseball. If you don't, you're probably better off, but I'm a pastor, so I, I keep my ear to the ground for different surveys and different opinions and the things that people say about the church. And you'll often hear today, perhaps you've heard it, that the church is in crisis. The church in the West is in crisis. Churches are in crisis. And there are good reasons to agree with that. But I was talking to our dear friend, uh, Dr. Potter, Al Potter. Uh, some of you who have been with us from the beginning know that he's from Shepherds and he has guided us. He's been a faithful friend with us uh, from the beginning of Hope Bible Church. I was just talking to him about some things that are going on and he said, David, the church has never not been in crisis. And so I was kind of thinking through that statement because he kind of walked me back through some of church history. Um, you know, because some people want to, to think that, um, you know, the early church, if we could just go back to the early church, like it was so different then. I, I, I sent this picture to Daniel a couple weeks ago and I didn't end up using it, so I'll just describe it. Um, there's this uh, picture from, who's the guy who invented basketball? Is it Neesmith? James Neesmith. You, maybe you've seen this. But he's standing in the backyard or somewhere and he's, he's holding a bucket. Um, and his wife is like standing right in front of him, shooting the ball into the bucket. And it's like, you know, it's like, hey, this is how, you know, basketball started, you know? And I, I, I think of that kind of in relation to the, the early church, you know? It's like, like, who would say, you know what? We need to go back to like early basketball when like somebody stood there holding a basket and, so, and other people, like nobody, we would be like, no, there's been some good improvements since that time. Like, you know, the basics are still there. There's a basket and there's a ball, you know, but there's been some, we've added some things that definitely make the game uh, better, all right? And I think the same thing, when people say to you, what we really need to do is go back to the early church, the way it was in the early church. It's like, yeah, I mean, there's some aspects of that that would be great, but we've also learned a lot of things over the last 2,000 years through God's Word and the Holy Spirit. All that to say, if you think that we should just go back to the way it was in the early church, what you find is that they weren't doing such a great job of being overcomers either. I mean, there was incredible conversions, and yes, there were miracles going on. Peter, uh, Peter preached in Acts 2 and 3, and thousands come to faith. But in those first years of the church, there's this massive struggle. From the outset, the Jews see Christians as blasphemers, and Saul, a.k.a. Paul, before his conversion, is going around imprisoning Christians, and that didn't stop just because Saul got saved. The Roman Empire denounced Christians as atheists because Christians rejected 
Roman gods. The, the Romans were highly superstitious, and they thought having these Christians around, you know, because they weren't appeasing the gods, were causing natural disasters, and that led to Christians and lions. And by the end of the first century, a guy by Domitian was emperor, and he had begun an official persecution of Christians, during which time our friend, who we spent the last year and a half with, the Apostle John, was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And so my point is simply that there wasn't much about the church at the end of the first century that looked like they were going to be overcoming anything. And I, I think that is true for every age. We have indwelling sin within us, right? And we have persecution and temptation coming from without. You know, Satan, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil, you know, is sort of our great in, in, enemy. Um, you know, so you've got the, the world and Satan who are trying to, like, break in, and then you've got the flesh that's trying to open the gates and let them in, all right? So we're in big trouble. Like, one way or the other, we got, we got sin trying to get in, and we got sinful hearts that are trying to let it in, which brings us to Jesus, right? So this is, the Lord led me this week to Revelation chapter 1. It's been a big encouragement to me. I'll tell you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach through, walk through some of the passages here, but I, I, I'm going for verse 12. Revelation, of course, is a strange book filled with strange verses, but Revelation 1.12 is especially strange. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So we're going to take a week. Our next passage in James is a famous passage. It's the passage that says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. I decided that it needs a little more work than I was able to give it this week. And so I thought I would turn with you to a passage that's been encouraging to me, and I want to share it with you. Here's the connection. We still don't feel like overcomers. We don't feel like overcomers individually. We don't feel like overcomers corporately. We don't look like overcomers. We are far from perfect. We are far from perfect as individuals. We are far from perfect as the church. But here's the thing. Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. And that's, that's where I want to head this morning. That's where I want to take you. Let me give you a word about Revelation. Revelation is an intimidating book. It is a mysterious book, but it is also an interesting book. Perhaps like me, you grew up reading the book of Revelation during church when the pastor got boring. And so you know a little more about that book than you know about other books. Some of you may have already been there today. You may have already been prepped ahead of time. I'm going to go ahead and open to the book of Revelation, and you were like, whoa, hey, that's never happened before. I think we will eventually preach through the book of Revelation, I, I think probably sooner rather than later. Uh, if you're already in chapter 1, consider the, the promise of verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That's quite a promise, right? Don't you think it makes sense that Satan would like to obscure a book from the people of God that starts off with a promise that says, blessed are you when you hear, when you read aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are you when you hear. So we've got this great promise of blessing for reading this book and for hearing this book, so it makes complete sense to me that Satan would be like, yeah, let's make sure they don't pay any attention to that. Let me also say too, and then we'll get to the passage, I understand Revelation to be mostly speaking of the future, and 
I know different commentators will disagree on that. There's some confusion. I think those who take it any other way are wrong. Verse 19, down at the bottom of our passage this morning, I think is sort of an outline of the book. It says, write therefore the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are about to take place after this. In John chapter 1, he is, I mean, in Revelation chapter 1, John is writing about the things he has seen. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he's going to write letters to the churches, which are the things that are. And then I would argue that Revelation 4 through 22 contains the things that are to be, that are to take place. But clearly, the whole book is relevant. Even though it speaks of the future, the whole book is relevant. And John the writer thought so. That's why he promises blessing to everyone who reads and hears it and obeys it. So let me read to you this morning our passage. Like I said, I'll, I've, I've really got one point at the end. I'll, I'll walk through the passage quickly to try to explain it to you. Beginning in verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Revelation, in many ways, is about our hope and the return of Jesus Christ. And just to be clear, that is our hope. But the vision that John has... In chapter 1, and this is why I want to share this with you this morning, is a vision of Jesus in the present, glorified among his churches. So what we have here is a picture, a powerful picture, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the ministry of hope and encouragement that he is providing to us right now. So that's the relevance of our passage this morning. So let's look at the setting of the passage in verses 9 through 11. I'm not going to introduce you again to the Apostle John. If you weren't with us last year, we spent a lot of time with John in the Gospel of John. This is the same man who wrote the Gospel of John. Interestingly, he never identifies himself by name in the Gospel of John, but he he identifies himself by name three times in this first chapter of Revelation. He is 90 years old, and he is living on a small island in the Mediterranean Sea. And brothers and sisters, This is not a resort. He is not living a life of leisure. 
His conditions were difficult. He was in exile. There's a good chance that as a 90-year-old man, he was being forced to do hard labor. He probably had very little food or water. He describes himself as a partner in the tribulation. So he too is being persecuted, and this relates to some of what we've been learning in the book of James. He is on the Isle of Patmos, he says, because of the word and the testimony of Jesus. He is living there because he has lived faithfully as a minister of the word of God, and he has been persecuted. And he speaks of patient endurance. So just, again, to our, to our, our passages over the last few weeks, John himself is patiently enduring the trial that has been brought on him because of his commitment to preaching the word of Christ. In the midst of the trial, I want you to see that he worships. John says that the vision came to him on the Lord's day, and this is a very funny um, phrase. This is the only place where this phrase appears in the whole Bible. You may have heard of the day of the Lord, which is the coming day of the Lord, the day of judgment when Jesus returns, when we, what we look forward to, and when the world will be judged, but this is a different construction. It, it's actually, in the Greek, almost like the Lordy day, the, the, the Lord day. And so we take this, I mean, it's debatable, but I understand this to mean that it is Sunday, and that at this time, 90, uh, John being 90 years old, some 60 years after the death of Jesus, the, the, the day Sunday has already been come to be known as the Lord's Day. He is in the Spirit, worshiping on the Lord's Day. Even in his trials, even as difficult as it is, John is keeping his heart in the Spirit so that he can worship Christ. And there's a loud voice like a trumpet from behind him, and he says, as we read, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So these were seven churches, and they actually existed. And John is told to write down that message, and, and this message is going to be added to what will eventually become our scriptures. Those, that message to those seven churches will be written down and spread throughout the world. All right, let's turn and see Christ then among the churches. Look at verses 12 and 13, and then we'll jump down to verse 20 briefly. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And then if you look down in verse 20, it says, The seven lampstands are the seven churches. If you have a hard time understanding Revelation, the nice thing is, sometimes... Revelation explains itself. In this case, those mysterious seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John hears a voice like a trumpet. He turns around, and his heart was encouraged, but he was knocked off of his feet. Down in verse 17, it says, I, I fell down as though dead. He sees the risen, glorified Jesus Christ standing in the midst of the lampstands, which represent his churches. And these are they're common oil stands. There's nothing notable about the lampstands. They're golden, but they're just common oil stands that would have stood in a house to provide light. But the fact that they are gold symbolizes that they are precious. And there are seven of them, which I think symbolizes completeness. So yes, even though John is, Jesus is speaking to these seven churches, he is speaking to all churches that will be his throughout all time until he returns. So they're beautiful gold lampstands. 
Does the church seem beautiful today? And, I'm, and I am not talking about our, our, our glorious orange, orange room with, uh, with our, um, you know, stained glass windows, such as they are. Things could use some work. Uh, there might, you know, I, I would urge you to be careful, you know, standing too much underneath out here because that could fall down. Uh, we, all, we all see these things. But we're not talking about the beauty of the building, right? We're all clear on that. The church is not a building. It is a group of people who have gathered together, and we have a lot of sin, and we have a lot of problems, and we don't always get along with each other. But in John's vision, the church is a beautiful golden lampstand, and the church is a light. Philippians 2 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So Jesus is standing in the midst of seven beautiful lighted lampstands, and that is his church. And that's, that's, that's more man's, I mean, God's view of the church than it is man's. And, and I just want you to see that just, just for a moment this morning. I don't, I don't know how you view the church, but God views the church this way. And, and there's a reason for that, because Jesus is in the midst of her, all right? And he's wearing a long robe and a sash. That's the clothes of a high priest. In the Old Testament, the high priest wore a sash. And Jesus stands among his churches as our high priest, and he intercedes for us. And this is one of the great promises. In high school earlier, uh, in, in high school and middle school earlier, Sunday school, I, I was talking about that God's promises, one of the great things about God's promises, we were talking about God's promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. One of the great things about God's promises is that he always keeps his promises. God's name is at stake that he would keep his promises. So when you hear that Jesus is interceding for you, whether it's in Revelation, in this picture of him with a sash, or in Hebrews as our great high priest, you need to believe that Jesus is in fact interceding for us, and he is interceding for his churches. He lives forever to make intercession for us. By the way, Romans chapter 8 also says that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. You've got two members of the Trinity who are engaged in interceding on our behalf. Jesus isn't just interceding for his churches, he is purifying his churches. Look at verses 14 and 15. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Daniel has a vision in, in chapter 7, verse 9. It looks like this. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne with fiery flames, its wheels burning fire. So just in case you're wondering who this white-haired person with flaming eyes and bronze feet is, it's Jesus Christ. He is standing among the churches, and his white hair <laughs> symbolizes wisdom. You know, it's white hair is the, the, the symbol of wisdom of the aged, holy knowledge. Jesus Christ always knows what to do. I, I'm getting, my hair, my hair is getting whiter and whiter, and I have no sense that it's causing me to always know what to do. But Jesus does. Jesus does. He always knows what to do. He lives forever to make intercession. He always knows what to do, and he is always to be trusted. And he's judge. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He's got laser beams for eyes. His eyes are a flame of fire. 
He sees everything with piercing clarity. He knows everything there is to know. I, I don't know your hearts. I, I don't know. I, I can see the things that other people do. I can hear the things that they say. But we don't have eyes that can pierce into the heart. Jesus does. Jesus does. Jesus knows what's going on in people's hearts. And his feet are like burnished bronze. And so here's the picture here. In ancient times, a king, a judge, a king would sit and he would be elevated. And it was, a, it was like a thing that you were beneath somebody who you could see their feet. The Bible speaks of Christ's enemies being brought under his feet. Jesus' feet. He is the judge. You can see his feet and they are burnished bronze. So he moves among his churches. He moves among his churches as, as a high priest. He moves among his churches as king, as judge, and he knows what ought to go on in his church. So he speaks. Verse 15, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. If you want to understand Revelation better, it would be good to know your Old Testament because many of the things that are stated in Revelation have been stated before. So, for instance, in Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel says, Behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. So Jesus' voice is the sound of many waters, just like the coming of the glory of the Lord that Ezekiel speaks of. As Christ moves among his churches, he speaks, and we should listen, because out of his mouth is a sharp, two-edged sword. The writer of Hebrews says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus Christ speaks to us through his word. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I just want to be clear on this. This is a foundational principle at Hope Bible Church. We believe that Jesus Christ speaks authoritatively through these scriptures. The one who moves among the lampstands is the only one who is qualified to speak with authority. I am your pastor. You have elders. We are not qualified to speak on our own with authority. The only way we have authority is if we say, thus saith the Lord, let us explain that to you. And if we can't adequately explain it to you, then, then you have every right to keep wondering, to keep asking, to keep searching. We don't have eyes that pierce the hearts of men and women. We don't know their thoughts, but we are utterly dependent on Jesus Christ, the white-haired Son of Man, with a voice like the waters and the tongue like a sword. And we must trust Him to guide this church. He is high priest. He is judge. He is king. He speaks, and we obey. And we must not take that lightly. And John doesn't take it lightly. Look at verse 17. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. You guys, if anybody ever tells you that they had a vision of Jesus Christ and it didn't involve them falling on their feet, then it is entirely inconsistent 
with everything we see in the scripture. Isaiah 6, 5, woe is me. Isaiah standing in the throne room of God and he sees the throne and his train fills the temple and the, the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he says, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of un people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king. Woe is me means I should be undone. I should cease to exist because I've seen this. Ezekiel 128, Ezekiel sees the appearance and the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and he says, when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And then Matthew 17, 6, if you think that's just an Old Testament phenomena, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus appears in all of his glory with Moses and Elijah, the disciples fell on their faces and were terrified. So this same vision that I present to you this morning to comfort our hearts and to encourage us should also move us to holy fear because it is possible to read that Christ is among the churches and he's really just looking to do whatever we want him to do as if he is more of a servant than a king, as if he is here to serve our whims and do our bidding. He is gentle and lowly as the book on the back table says and I would encourage you to pick one up because we got a lot of them back there. He cares deeply for the needy among his flock. He is the great comforter, but we shouldn't allow ourselves to forget that he is also our glorious king, and he is the one before whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. John follows up with assurance. He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. As our fear of Christ drives us to our knees, to our faces, here's the great thing about Jesus. And I, I hope you look forward to this day because you're going to see Jesus and you're going to fall at his feet because that's what humans do. And then just like he does here in Revelation to John, he is going to reach down and he is going to invite you to stand up. We're going to see in James chapter 4, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. I love that picture of Christ, the glorious King, before whom we have dropped as dead, reaching down and saying, do not be afraid. And the comfort that he offers us is because of his authority, not in spite of it. He is the first and the last. He is the eternal, uncreated, self-existent God. But he is also man. It says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. The Greek there is unique. It's, it's actually, I became dead. He is God who can never die, and yet he became a man, and he did die, and now he is alive forevermore. He adds that little word there, behold, like you're not going to believe this. I was dead, and now I'm alive, and I am alive forevermore. And then he has authority. I have the keys of death and Hades. He has the authority to decide who lives and who dies. The one who moves among the lampstands delivers us from death by his death. He said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Because he lives, we live. So a proper view of Jesus drives us to our knees in holy fear, but it is because of who he is and the authority that he has that he can reach down and lift us up and say, do not be afraid. And the whole host of heaven, nobody can say, Wait, that guy? Because Jesus has all authority. You may look around and be like, why am I standing up here? But Jesus is going to be like, you're standing up because I told you you can. That's an amazing thought. All heaven will know that Jesus died and gave himself for that person. 
And then there's a word of commission. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, and those that are, and those that are to take place. And this is the final response in the vision, is to write these things down. Pass them along. Tell others what I have told you. We talked about this in the Gospel of John. John wrote these things down as an old man, and he says, pass it on. I saw him. I really saw him. I'm writing it down. Now you take it, and you tell somebody else. We pass on the words of this book. We are not here to spread the wisdom of men. Shame on us if we do. We are here to announce the wisdom that comes through Jesus Christ. And I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, more and more these days, people don't want to hear that wisdom. And ours is not a message that people will want to hear. And like John, we may pay a price for this message. But also like John, we must continue to worship the one who moves among the lampstands. So, all that just to say, Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. That's really my only point this morning. I want you to see that Christ stands among his churches. His eyes are like a fire. His voice are like the many waters. His mouth comes, out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged two -edged sword. How can this glorified, perfect Jesus stand with us, imperfect people in imperfect churches, because that glorious person loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And by his blood, he has all authority to reach down into our sinfulness and say, do not fear. And Jesus says to you today, tenderly, do not fear. And we ought not to take any of this for granted, and we certainly ought not to trample upon his grace. The first message, as you may know, is his message to the church at Ephesus, which begins in the first part of chapter 2, and he says this, lots of good things, but he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Wait, you have, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So I, I, I read that to say we must be warned it is possible for a church to lose its lampstand. The concern for the church at Ephesus was that even though they did many great things, they had lost their first love. And I understand their first love to be love for Christ and love for one another. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know this morning that I believe our first love, our first allegiance must be to Christ. He is the one who stands among his churches. And we must be careful that we do not transfer our allegiance to a Christ of our own making, one who is made in our image. And our church looks to him through his word. He knows. He knows what's right. Even when some ideas are terribly out of fashion, and they are, his ways are ways that shine his light through us and around us. And he is conforming us to his image. And I want you to know, the elders at Hope are very, very unified and very, very committed to looking to this Jesus and listening to his words. And in doing so, we believe we are following Jesus. We need him. We are not interested in the wisdom of this world. James has been showing us where that leads. We started this church four years ago, and we started this church with a commitment to something called biblical counseling. When you come to us for help, all we're saying is that you are going to receive counsel from the scriptures. 
We're not saying you can't seek help from anywhere else. We may warn you about it, but we may very well ask you to stop. But we're, if you come to us, we're going to talk to you pastorally from the Bible. And I want you to know, after four years, we stand by this commitment more than ever. By his grace and with his help, we intend to offer Hope Bible Church pastoral care based on the words of the one who moves among the lampstands. And we actually believe, and I just want to be clear on this, we actually believe that an approach to helping people that tries to integrate the world's wisdom with the words of Christ will not help Christians, and in fact, in many cases, will make things worse. And so if you're here this morning, and if you're here this morning and you've thought, maybe I would like to join up with Hope Bible Church, I just, I want to be so clear with you that this is our approach. We we want, if you have a problem, if you have something that you want us to help you with, and you sit down with me or Matt or Tyler or Tony or, or some of the other people at our church who want to be able to, we are going to open up the Bible and we're going to see how God's Word applies to your situation. And it may be complicated and it may take a lot of prayer and it may take a lot of time, but that's where we're going to seek help. And I just want to let you know, if you've thought, maybe I would like to join this church, I just want to be clear with you that that is what we think. Maybe, maybe you're a member here, and maybe you've still got questions. Maybe you're like, I don't know about all this counseling stuff. Like, it, it all seems kind of crazy to me. You know, I, I mean, just only one way that you guys would do it. Come and talk to us. Come and talk to us. Let us, let us teach you what we have come to understand and what we have come to believe. Let us share our own experiences with seeing God's Word move in our own hearts, and change our own lives. And let us get those questions answered for you. Is the church in crisis? Yes. The church has always been in crisis. So much so that we must always look to the one who can deal with the crisis. And he is the only one who can deal with our crisis. And just because Revelation is about the future, and I think we should at least give a nod in that direction, look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. We want to trust the one who moves among the lampstands. We want to trust his word. It's not going to be popular. Sometimes it's going to be really hard, but we're going to trust him and what he has revealed, and we're going to believe that he will bless that. If you're here this morning and you're going to help us with the Lord's table, if you'll come up and grab the cup and the bread. This is a meal that we take together. It's a meal that we take together because we believe the same things. It's a meal that we take together in fellowship, where we eat the bread that represents the body of Christ, and we drink the, the juice that represents the blood of Christ. And it's an act of us saying, we're doing this together. And if you are here this morning and you believe in that same Jesus who walks among the lampstands, I would invite you to partake in this meal with us. Even if you're not a member of Hope Bible Church, you are welcome to participate in this meal. But if you don't know that one with the white hair and the flaming eyes and the sword coming out of his mouth and the bronze feet, refrain and let us tell you more about him. Because we would like nothing more than to see you become a follower of that Jesus. These dear brothers and sisters are going to hand out the bread and the cup to you. Hang on to that. I'll come up and I will read 
a passage, and then we will partake together in just a few minutes.